you want to tell a great change story, you really got to hit the past, present, and future. Honor the past, provide a clear and compelling change mandate, and take a picture of the future that's rigorous and optimistic. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guests today are Francis Fry and Ann Morris. Francis is a professor of technology and operations management at Harvard Business School. She's been a senior vice president of leadership and strategy at Uber. Ann Morris is a leadership coach and executive founder of the Leadership Consortium, a leadership accelerator that works with everyone from early stage tech founders to Fortune 50 executives to public sector leaders building national competitiveness. In April of this year, Francis and Ann launched a podcast called Fixable. Uh, guests call in with their workplace issues and their problems are resolved in 30 minutes or less. And they also have a terrific new book just out called Move Fast and Fix Things, The Trusted Leader's Guide to Solving Hard Problems. Francis, and welcome to Technovation. It's wonderful to speak with you both. Oh, thank you, Peter. We're thrilled to be here. Just thrilled. Oh, it's very kind of you to say. I've been, been thrilled for this conversation, having been an admirer of your work from, from a distance. But first, a quick word from our partner, Cisco, and the company's vice president and chief product officer of its incubation engine, OutShift, Poppy Menon. Poppy wanted to share how he and his team are building solutions to help organizations secure their cloud infrastructures. Poppy, over to you. Within Outship, we have a multi-cloud defense suite. Panoptica, the product that we are talking about, it's a full cloud-native application protection platform, and it works very well with other products in the Cisco security and observability portfolio, where insights from Panoptica are fed into those products and help inform your cloud-native security. One of the biggest advantages with the Panoptica product is this ability to visualize your attack path. For any enterprise operating at non-trivial scale, your cloud infrastructure will have thousands, if not tens of thousands of vulnerabilities. This is just going to be the way things are, but that's not actionable. When you have 10,000 vulnerabilities, you don't know what to do about them. What Panoptica allows you to do is to take that and distill it down and say, of the thousands of vulnerabilities that you have out there, which of them should you pay attention to because they form part of a credible attack path that can compromise one of your critical assets? It makes it actionable and we call it prioritize with precision. So it really helps you prioritize the things that matter based on the credible threat that they pose. And now on to the interview. Well, good. Both of you have, in addition to some of the small thumbnail sketch of a of biographical detail that I've just provided, also have uh, wonderful TED Talks. And you had a fantastic one called Five Steps to Fix Any Problem at Work. Francis, you had one entitled How to Build and Rebuild Trust. And in some ways, your book suggests the intersection of these as it's about fixing things, but also the subtext suggests that one must be a trusted leader, not just any leader in order to do so. Um, and perhaps I'll begin with you. Uh, where did your, for lack of a better way of framing it, passion for fixing things come from? Uh, how did that become a, a topic that you chose to, to master? Uh, it's a great question. And Peter, you have such a great radio voice that I'm just being lulled into li <laughs> listening to you talk. So if I have to ask you to repeat the question. It's not my <laughs> fault. It's your fault. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think Francis and I both share a healthy impatience for solving problems. And, and one of the big observations from our work is that the metabolic rate of most organizations is really not up to the task of making real progress on our hardest problems as leaders, arguably as a species. I mean, it really came from the most gratifying part of the work we do together, which is to help leaders accelerate change. And then we get to be a part of what happens next, which is that 
there's more impact. There's more of the things that make change possible in organizations, things like creativity and innovation and even joy gets released in this process. And, you know, I have to confess, it's pretty addictive to be a part of. And and the results, I'm sure, are just so gratifying, not just for you, but those people that you're working with. Francis, what are some of the necessary ingredients to becoming a trusted leader, since that's a, a qualifier to the, to, to the fixes that are necessary, at least according to your book? In order to be trusted, and this is at the individual team organization uh, society level, people need to experience three things from us. They need to experience our authenticity, logic, and empathy. And the operational manifestation of those words is that for authenticity, um, you're, we're constantly assessing whether or not our words match our actions, you know, that, and that I think for sure, but also do they match our beliefs? And that's what bridges it from integrity to authenticity. Do you get the sense that those are all mutually reinforcing? Do you experience the rigor of our plan? And do you get the sense that we care for you and about you and and we're inclusive of you in that beautiful calculus we were doing in that plan? The ingredients quite simply are authenticity, logic, and empathy, although I don't mean to say that it's quite simple to do, but we can state it simply. Can I ask you, one thing I've been thinking an awful lot about with regard to the, the, the topic of trust is... The, the difficulty in earning it in an environment where so many of us are working virtually, um, yeah. you know, so many of the norms for, for many of us who for decades worked with our colleagues in offices and, you know, so much of just the accidental interactions on the way to lunch, uh, up and down the elevator, uh, you know, walking past a cubicle or an office, the unplanned conversations were oftentimes the opportunity for authenticity, logic, empathy, perhaps, and uh, one must be so much more intentional if, in fact, the only reason we have to meet is this one topic we're tackling and we'll tackle that and then move on to the next thing and maybe not speak for we will not have an accidental uh, interaction, perhaps. Uh, and it may be some time before we get down to the next sort of topic of business that will occupy the next 30 minute block and so forth. Have you thought about what changes uh, leaders should undertake in order to foster that trust in a very new mode of work, at least for many of us? I think I love your accidental interaction. It's a it's much better than the water cooler moment. Um, and I really could feel it on the escalator going up and down as you, <laughs> as, you as you said it. Um, so I think that in uh, in real life, there are ways that that happens. And we've been perfecting those ways for a long time. It's like where we put our offices and our offices near each other or far away from each other. We've been thinking about that for a long time. How should conference rooms be designed? How should hallways be designed? We have not been thinking about how to do this virtually for nearly as long, but we have made so much progress in such a small period of time. So for example, every time you're on a Zoom meeting, you have the ability to share your thoughts and comments. You can't do that in real life. Like it's inappropriate for us to, only one person at a time can have a mic in the meeting. Maybe you'll interrupt someone. Well, now we can share our thoughts. We can build on each other's thoughts. We can encourage each other. So there's a, a new dimension of communication that's simply by having chat. And there's also the use of emojis. There's use of, so there are so many things that we can do in the virtual world that we can't do in real life. And we're just at the beginning of optimizing it. So what I would say is that, and borrowing from the language of our dear friend and colleague, Sadal Neely, the office is a tool, Zoom is a tool, 
let's think about each of these different tools and let's optimize them. Now, I think that the office, um, we are probably a couple decades behind in optimizing for our current reality uh, that they were designed for a long ago time and that we need to think movable walls, not fixed walls and things like that. But I want to do it also for virtually. But I am certainly convinced that you can build just as much trust. I mean, we did the experiment when we were all working from home and it was during a pandemic. And we built loads of trust with one another. Going forward, it won't be during a pandemic, so it's going to be easier. But I want us to think about how to optimize those things. Yeah, really interesting. Your book title is is obviously a play on Facebook's former motto, move fast and break things. Um, you, you keep the move fast, so speed is still a currency, needless to say. And the fact that you're going to be fixing things means that not everything is going to be a success. If you're innovating, you're not batting a thousand. It requires some strikeouts here and there, but perhaps learning learning from those along the way as well. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll turn back to you. Um, talk a bit about the recipe for ensuring that speed is still very much uh, at the center of how one gauges progress, but also thinking further about allowing for for failure, if you will, but but learning from that along the way as well. Just a bit of context for your listeners. So Francis and I uh, have spent about a decade working with companies, many of which leaned in to move fast and break things, and who then called us to help clean up some of the wreckage. We have gone deep on this implicit trade-off that in order to move fast, you have to generate a lot of collateral damage along the way. And and one of the main lessons from our work is that the trade-off that's living at the heart of that worldview is fundamentally false. So the most effective change leaders that we know, they are moving fast, but they're also fixing things along the way. And I know in this conversation, we're going to kind of get into the playbook that has come out of that. But embedded in that playbook is this idea that we do have to show up in the workplace with some humility and recognition that there are going to be some problems, particularly the hard ones that are not yet solved, where we don't know the answer at the beginning of this process. And it starts with some curiosity about what's really going wrong, but then very quickly gets to where you were going, Peter, which is a willingness to experiment. And in order to learn something from those experiments, we have to be willing to fail um, because we have to be willing to run experiments where the outcomes are uncertain. You know, that's not an easy place for human beings, particularly achievement oriented human beings who have figured out how to succeed and climb the hierarchy. And that is another thing that requires quite a bit of intention to invite the parts that are anxious about that journey to step out of the room uh, and make room for our inner scientists so we can really learn from the experience. Yeah, and you you refer to that as an acceleration of excellence, which I think is a a great framing that uh, ultimately if you do this, it's better outcomes as a result of that. Absolutely, that is the end point that we're, we're going for is building high trust environments that allow you to move even faster. And we describe that state as accelerating excellence. Well, many books uh, are playbooks or have methodologies or processes to follow. Few books tell you- Ours what is day- better, Peter. Uh, well, I was going <laughs> to yeah. say, few have have uh, days of the week uh, in which you should you should be implementing the different steps, which I think is takes the level of practicality 
uh, up up several notches. And what we'll just say is that we tried to have it as hours of the day. Just so, <laughs> uh, so the listener, you're welcome for backing away from that idea. <laughs> our, our, our publisher talked us off the ledge on that one. Yes. That was our, we retreated to days of the week only. But if you look carefully, the agenda for every day does have a suspiciously similar to the number of hours in a day. (laughs) You found a way to get that in despite the protests of the publisher. Well, let's begin with Monday. uh, As the work week does, uh, you you write, uh, bring your curiosity on Monday. Um, I'll use that as a launching point. And perhaps Francis, if you wouldn't mind taking it from there, uh, what what do you mean by that? And and what is it sort of the antidote to in your mind as well? That we need curiosity to make sure that we are solving the right problem, the real problem. So I mean, in some respects, a week feels like, oh my gosh, that's a long time. And in some respects, it's a short time. We want you to be using it only for the problems that really require it. To us, it's a long time, an entire week. And we so often see people solving a symptom, but not the underlying root of the problem. And to get from symptom to underlying root, you have to bring in curiosity. Why this symptom? And then when you hear the answer to that, why? And when you hear the answer to that, why? It's Toyota made famous in their Toyota production system, the five whys, indicating that it's about five curious whys to go from the symptom to the root cause. So without curiosity, what we find is organizations are overconfident in, oh, this is the problem as it presented, let's solve this. And then the problem just manifests again and again because you are just addressing a symptom. We find it can take all day, but it's worth it because then the rest of the week, you are now solving the real problem. And when we work with organizations, we ask them, come up with the problem that if you solve it, the life of your organization and everyone on your organization will be materially better. We like to think of this as we could add a zero to performance. We could skyrocket sentiment, like only do this for the things that are going to make a very, very big difference. And then let's make sure you're solving the real problem. And we need curiosity on Monday to do that. And Anne, you both write about developing an indignities list, which on the face of it sounds like a very negative thing, but it really interesting the way in which you frame that and, and converting indignities to dignities. Talk a bit about that, that, that notion, if you would. For sure on Monday, at some point, you are going to be in what has historically been coded as a difficult conversation with people who have a stake in the problem you're trying to solve. So sometimes those conversations are difficult. Sometimes they're not. Uh, For sure, they require a a little bit of courage on your part to initiate them. One technology we use, technology small t, (laughs) is, is something that we call the indignities list. So let's look at the way that the people involved with your problems are having their humanity nicked in some way. Let's make that super, super discussable. Often there are roots of that down to the real problem you're solving. But when you can begin a dialogue that really starts with restoring the full humanity of everyone who shows up in the workplace, it creates a context where you can make fast progress on surfacing and understanding your real problem. So we have in our book some examples of when companies have really been willing to have these conversations, what's come to the surface. So one, um, Francis, at risk of throwing your employer under the bus, but better that I do it 
and not you. <laughs> One of the challenges that Harvard Business School was wrestling with was their junior faculty, particularly the women on their junior faculty, were having a harder time thriving than some of their male peers, and particularly the women who were also mothers. So one of the things that surfaced in this kind of indignities conversation was that the daycare on campus didn't open until after the departmental meetings that many of the departments were having. And so the moms on the team were having to make this really difficult trade-off of, do I show up as a team player for these meetings? Or, you know, do I get to have this really beautiful moment of transitioning my child gracefully into, you know, the equivalent of their own work world? It was a blind spot. People didn't realize that there were um, people on the team having to make this trade-off. It was easy to fix. It was not difficult to say, oh, well, let's push the meeting back an hour. And it didn't just make the lives of these women better. It made the lives of everyone better. Like, so the dads on the team also could drop their kids off at daycare gracefully and then go to work. And it's it's that kind of small stuff, seemingly small stuff, that when you focus on it and fix it, suddenly it opens up the possibility of having conversations about the, the kind of real problems. And there was a bigger problem for sure around how to set women up to thrive on the faculty, but it changed the tone and context for that dialogue when we were able to convert indignities to dignities. It is also, Anne, is it not... Um not only asking people for those indignities, but having them suggest the resolution of those. So this isn't simply a complaint list for lack of a better way of framing it, but but also it's something you're feeling, what would you see as the resolution to it? Oh, for sure. For the absence of doubt, it's also about co-producing the solutions. Well, then Tuesday, uh, the moving on a day in the week, uh, the ambition of the day is to create a good enough plan, not not a perfect plan based on on some of what's already been learned. Uh, and maybe you can provide uh, continuing with you for a moment. Uh, what exactly is a good enough plan? Well, Peter, it's distinct from a perfect plan. That's really <laughs> the definition of a good enough plan. The pursuit of perfection is a toxin in many organizations and in the lives of many of us humans, if I may confess. So we really want you to be in a learning mindset on Tuesday to run experiments in how to solve problems and strengthen the relationship and the trust within the stakeholder group that you've really identified as, as part of the problem. As Francis said, there's a very stable architecture of trust. It's a lens in to this experimentation, figure out is it authenticity or logic or empathy that's getting wobbly on you, and then get into the organizational sandbox and give yourself permission to play. What we want to solve for on Tuesday is learning. And again, as we've already talked about, that's going to require some vulnerability, but a willingness to be in action and find out if your plan is going to work or not. It's the only way to get to something reasonable is to really go out there and give it a shot. Francis, I wanted to return to you on this notion of trust. And indeed, it's this uh, portion of the book where, where you get into, as, as Anne also referenced, the, the authenticity, empathy, and logic as the ingredients to trust. For organizations where, where trust is an issue, this is a real cultural change that's necessary, which is often the most difficult change to enact. Um, it changes of behaviors, uh, overcoming norms that may be decades in the making. Um, and I wonder 
what are some of the first steps uh, to to make that sort of a cultural change, uh, pivoting towards trust, where perhaps there's a lack of that? Maybe I'll use an illustrative example to do it. So if the illustrative Please. example is that people aren't performing well, right. they're not achieving whatever it is that we wanted achieved, and you suspect that culture has something to do with it, culture is getting in the way. We ask the questions, uh, and we, we learned this from another friend and colleague, Ryan Buell, uh, from the Harvard Business School. And, and the framework we use is that if people aren't performing well, there's only ever three reasons why. It's they don't have the capability to do it, or they have the capability, but they don't have the motivation, or they have the capability and the motivation, but they don't have the permission or the license to do it. And it's super helpful to know that it's just those three things. And so we encourage people to begin with capability and go in and solve the capability gaps that are within your organization. Now, it could be the capability of as an individual contributor, I don't know how to do my job, or it could be the capability of a manager that doesn't know how to lead a team. So wherever that cultural breakdown is occurring, it's occurring with people. That's the part of culture. So where is the capability gap? We provide a way to systematically solve any capability gap. And then once you have that, we then want to make sure that the performance management system it takes care of the motivation and then the job design takes care of the license. If I was going to use shorthand, I would say find the capability gap at the heart of the trust breakdown because it's there. There's a person that's not up to speed on something. And there are several ways to overcome a capability gap. Peter, one of the patterns we see in organizations is that there is this beautiful culture of experimentation in some functions. So particularly in product and engineering, there's a long history and there's lots of well-developed muscles around running experiments. We see much less of that in the rest of the organization. And so one of the things we're inviting people to do on Tuesday is to bring that same learning mentality and curiosity and willingness to experiment into other parts of the business as well, and in particular into our relationships with each other and in these very people-heavy functions. And just, again, get in there and try and solve for learning. Very interesting. Great advice. Well, let's move on to Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday is Make New Friends Day. <laughs> I I, uh, I love that framing. Um, maybe, Francis, if you wouldn't mind uh, taking a moment, uh, what's meant by that? If at the end of Tuesday you have a good enough plan, the end of Wednesday, you have an even better plan. TM, <laughs> good enough, even better. A surefire way to graduate your good enough to even better is to involve more points of view, more experiences. And so we, what we say to people is, look at your metaphorical table that you brought everybody around to solve your problem. And then bring up some empty chairs and point to those empty chairs and ask yourself, who's missing from the conversation? Which perspectives do we not yet have? And we find that the peripheral vision that you can get that by widening the aperture, oh my gosh, the plan gets so much better. So this will be particularly true. We work with a lot of senior teams and the senior teams might be very similar demographically, for example. So we've worked with a number of organizations whose customers are women, senior teams are all men. A very easy one is when they're talking about what women want, we're just like, let's just open up the chairs. Or at, at HBS, when senior faculty get together to talk about how to help junior faculty, we have all kinds of great ideas. 
let's bring some junior faculty chairs to the table. So the making new friends, it's a very deliberate, intentional curation of widening the aperture. Now, once you get them into the room and sitting at the table, that's step one. But then you have to create the conditions so that their voice is heard and that they feel comfortable doing that. In the language we use, that they feel included. So we need to invite them in, invite in difference, and then be inclusive of the gorgeous difference that they represent. And when you do that, even better is an understatement for how much better the plan gets when you invite in the lens of all of those magnificent people. And you, uh, the two of you refer to uh, the process, I believe, about this time in the book uh, of new beeps <laughs> that occur. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, what, what's intended by that. It's a beautiful exercise that um, Francis and her colleagues do. I, I want to properly credit, I think the designer of the exercise was Amy Edmondson. And, yeah. Oh, Francis, and, your colleague uh, at Harvard. Yes. yes. And I'm going to give you the, <laughs> Francis, you can, you can describe the operational detail if needed, but really the only way to make progress on the exercise, and it, there's a floor maze where you have no idea how to get to the other side. And the only way to learn is to make mistakes. And, the, and there are good mistakes and bad mistakes. If you keep stepping on the same square and you get old beeps, you learn nothing. But if you step on a square and make a mistake and get a new beep, then you get this precious new information. And it goes back to our, the earlier part of our conversation where the pivot for students, Francis, if I'm capturing this correctly, is really changing our relationship with failure and realizing that it's this new information that's going to get you to the end of the maze. And we want to treat any kind of new information, whether it's a successful beep or a new beep, as useful to us. That takes a change in our orientation to failure. And one of the things in, in doing this exercise, you know, year after year with students, this will probably date me this reference, but they would get into a karate kid pose. They're on the maze. They're standing there. None of the squares in front of them have been touched. What you really should do is fast experimentation, right? You're going to hit a beep. So let's do it as quickly as possible. But that's not what our instinct is. Our instinct is to hesitate and take in a lot of input. The stakes really are so nervous. high. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then when you do hit one, that will inevitably be a new beep. Everyone's like, oh, in fact, we watch the students turn their backs on the person who did it out of disappointment. So our wiring is completely opposite of what we need. We want the joy and the cherishing of new beeps. When you find something that didn't work, that is what's on the path to what did work. And so honor it just as much as when you get a square that doesn't beep at all and you can progress forward. And, and uh, though our wiring is the opposite, as you point out, what Amy Edmondson refers to as intelligent failure is trainable, you note. Even though it's contrary to our nature, this is something that we can course correct. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we talk about inclusion, it's typically counter to our nature and we can course correct. In fact, we think you can course correct everything. And so it's just useful to know what's instinct, what's learned behavior. And by the way, the learned behavior becomes instincts 2.0. This is a, a deliberate act of learning new things. And, and Amy's new book on this, The Right Kind of Wrong, is introducing the whole world to it. Another friend and colleague. We're just going to go through the whole list of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the real, I mean, the real lesson on, on Wednesday is where are those new beeps most likely to come from in your own organization? 
they're most likely to come from people who think differently from the way you do. So we really are encouraging people to engage with colleagues, humans inside and outside the organization whose life experience and perspective in the world is materially different from yours. That's how you're going to get from a good enough plan to an even better plan. And uh, and Thursday is storytelling day. Uh, talk a bit about what's intended by that, please. Well, at the end of Wednesday, you have an even better plan. So you're feeling pretty good, but nobody knows about it yet. <laughs> and so on Thursday, we are offering you a structured way to tell the story of change in a way that's going to activate the people around you, the people who you really are going to need to help you execute that change. So there's an architecture, no surprise. You know, we're pattern seeking machines as human beings. So the pattern that we've observed is that if you want to tell a great change story, you really got to hit the past, present, and future. So you have to honor the past, people and events that have brought you to this moment. You have to provide a clear and compelling change mandate, and you have to pay a picture of the future that's rigorous and optimistic. And when you do all of these three things well, then it allows you to set that organization up for speed because people know exactly where you're going and why. One of the things I find so compelling about that, Anne, is that you honor the past. And, and I, I, I like that especially because the extent to which this is framed as something that we were wrong before and now we will be right could turn off a great number of people who've actually done a lot uh, to get us where we are. And so by honoring the past, it's sort of drawing folks in. Thank you for getting us to where we are. And now there's some new methods we might use to take the next hill, so to say. Each of the steps you've described, I think, are particularly interesting. But I, in change exercises that I've witnessed, oftentimes uh, there's a lack of buy-in from some because of a feeling as though the things that they've done in the past weren't correct or, or and in fact, are not honored, as you say. That's a step that we see people skip all the time, which is why we really wanted to highlight it. Prince, I'm going to tell another story about your life. <laughs> I love when you do it. Hey, <laughs> story <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> but Francis spends some time it's with It's Thursday, Uber. by the way, when this is being recorded. It yeah. is <laughs> storytelling day. <laughs> uh, Francis spent some time with Uber uh, when it was going through its very public crisis in leadership. And when the new CEO came in, Dara Khosrowshahi, and hosted his first all-hands meeting, he, he stood up and he committed to retain the edge that had made Uber a force of nature. Francis, I know you were in the room that day. It was a super powerful moment. And I think we were both struck by just the grace of this moment. He, he also stood up for a standing ovation for Travis, uh, who was his predecessor. And I think that's the word grace that we really want to invite you to bring to your storytelling, um, particularly to thinking about the past. In that moment, Peter, as you said, there were all of these people in the room who had helped to get Uber to that point. Now, it, of course, needed to change. As anyone reading the news could figure out, it needed to change. But those people had something real to lose in that uncertain future. And that's what we really want to say in this moment is to just honor the complexity in the room and the people who may be invested in the way things currently are. You know, one of the ways that we think about this in the change storytelling is it's really important to honor what you're not going to change. And then that's a beautiful way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that is. I really like that. It actually recalls to mind some of what you described also in terms of Friday, uh, which is license to go fast, but that you can't be great at everything. 
and acknowledging that that's the case. If you're attempting to, uh, you'll you'll reach a state of exhausted mediocrity. <laughs> and I, I wonder if you can, uh, Francis, perhaps you can take yeah. a moment and talk a bit about that necessity of realizing you can't be great at everything and therefore prioritizing, uh, forcing prioritization on those areas where you where you believe you will be. If I had magic dust in the world, I would sprinkle it on this, which is I wish we could be great at everything because it comes from such a wonderful place. It's a desire to do well on behalf of employees and shareholders and customers. And I find people nobly trying to do it all the time. The part that breaks my heart is that those same people are more and more exhausted and more and more like their competition, which is where we get to the exhausted mediocrity. So I wish it worked. And if I had magic dust, I would make it work. But since it doesn't, uh, I'll, I'll give maybe a lens into perhaps why it doesn't work and then what the alternative is. And why it doesn't work is that in order to be great at some things, we need disproportionate energy and attention. That comes from somewhere. So if I'm going to be disproportionately good at one thing, I have to take that time and resources away from another. The example that works for me, the illustrative example works for me, is when Steve Jobs came out on that stage 20 years ago almost at the Apple conference and brought out the MacBook Air, and he had it in a manila envelope. And he slid it out and it was just a gasp heard around the world of the lightest weight laptop in the world. And he was so proud of that. And he was unapologetic that what made it best in class at weight made it worst in class at physical features. And that he could have tried to be as good as possible at weight and physical features. And that would have led to exhausted mediocrity. So what allowed that to happen was to your beautiful word, prioritization. We're prioritizing weight over features. And so in organizations that are trying to be great at everything, they're lacking the strategic choice, the strategic prioritization. And that's actually a gift because when you know what to be great at and what to be bad at, not only do you get better performance, but you have better satisfaction. You have better work-life balance. Like everything is better in the presence of what we refer to as radical prioritization. And that comes from leadership. If leaders don't tell us what to prioritize, we'll hear the, the customers that want weight <laughs> in the morning and we'll hear the customers that want physical features in the afternoon and we will think it's our noble obligation to at least try. And this is where we think that that nobility of effort, as beautiful and well-intentioned as it is, often gets in the way of the nobility of excellence. And for the nobility of excellence, we need that really important strategic prioritization. I really like that. I wonder, uh, Anne, so we're, now we're at Friday, we have the license to go fast. We're moving, Peter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And how does one measure now after the five days uh, what should we be measuring to determine whether or not things have changed? How do we know that there, there have been the, the requisite improvements that, that we're sort of starting the flywheel towards greater levels of performance? Earlier in the week, you know, starting on Monday, ideally we've agreed on the metrics that are going to reveal whether we're successful by the end of the week. So we do care about time as a key metric on Friday. We want to get there quickly. One of the core observations and jumping off points for the book is that the most effective change leaders are indeed moving fast. You know, speed has gotten a bad name in part because of this unfortunate move fast and, and break things ethos. But the people who are really 
doing it right and transforming organizations are treating it as an essential variable in their change leadership equation. And so we want you to get there quickly. We're giving you a whole day, Peter. <laughs> Again, to, to be able to also sense these resources that get released when we know we're on the right track. So greater rates of innovation, lower rates of anxiety, deeper engagement from employees. All these things are, are metrics that are real indicators that you're on the right path. Yeah. And to Anne's point, Peter, I think it's really important on Monday to set the scorecard, to say, these are the measures. And you're going to have some that are achievement oriented, revenue growth, whatever it is, and some that are sentiment oriented, employee engagement, customer satisfaction, things like that. Whatever it is, give us the blank scorecard on Monday and don't waver for Friday and only do the things that if you can dramatically improve, it will be worth it. I would say that you don't get to create the scorecard on Friday. You created it on Monday, but you get to fill it in on Friday. And and it's it's great. I, I love the urgency that you present. I think I did. I hear correctly that you thought about uh, titling the book. How about now? Is yes, that correct. <laughs> <laughs> the rumors are true. Yeah, the rumors are true. And I think I heard you say in a in a past interview that some people take a cynical view about. Uh, but what if I fail after this week? You know, is it even worth sort of like embarking on this journey? And you counter with, but what if you fly? Uh, you know, you won't know until you start. Uh, I love the optimism. A, a, a point that's already come up in this this interview, the necessity for optimism of, of uh, seeing a path towards uh, better ways of work and, and better outcomes from that work, but also an urgency to begin ASAP to start this yeah. next Monday. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a that's a frequent way that we counter skeptics of this process. And even of the idea that you can have a significant impact in a week's time. Sure, of course, be skeptical. Change seems to take a long time. But what if we're right? about this? And what is the cost of giving it a try if we're already downgrading what can happen in a week? Like, no, Okay, yeah. if nothing was going to happen anyway, give this approach a shot and see how much progress you can make. And then let's talk. The quote you reference is a beautiful line of poetry that we put in the front of the book, which is, yes, what if I fail? Oh, but my darling, what if you fly? Uh, which is, we think is the material question. That's really fantastic. And Francis, at the outset of this interview, I believe it was you who said, you know, for some, it feels like a week is so long, but there are 52 of them, uh, you know, in, in the coming year. And so why not at least spend one taking a chance on a new way of doing things, perhaps an investment in, in an ability to fly? And what we also hope is that if you read this book and you see the organization is doing a year long or a two year long change effort, that's where we would like you to direct your skepticism. <laughs> Because what we find is that the status quo is disadvantaging some. And how much longer are you willing to tolerate it? And when someone tells us we're willing to tolerate that for a year or two years, our hearts break, particularly when we know you can make it better in much, much greater speed. And we understand where it came from. People got to this responsible stewardship, we call it, out of fear of reckless disruption. We get it, but this book offers an antidote to having to live your life either in responsible stewardship or reckless disruption. And it's a way to accelerate excellence. We believe it's a much better way to live. So when Friday concludes, what are we doing over the weekend? You are resting, Peter. <laughs> um, for, for sure, you're taking the weekend off and all of the beautiful peak performance literature 
that's out there concludes the same thing that um, human beings, uh, we do thrive when we're sprinting, but it only works when we're also recovering. And that recovery moment at the end of each sprint is just as important as, as the action phase. And we tend to undervalue it as human beings and as organizations run particularly on Friday, but rest on the weekend. And then you earn the right to start all over again when it's Monday. What great advice that is. Um, Francis, I've heard you say that, and in both of you spend a lot of time with a, a wide array of organizations um, that no doubt, of course, have as many issues as there are companies or organizations that you interact with. And I've heard you say that it takes minutes uh, for you to diagnose uh, some of the dysfunctions of those teams. I wonder what are some of the questions you ask or the ways in which you probe to determine what are some of the areas that might need correction? It's easiest when we get to observe teams because then you don't even have to ask questions. Mm. You just get to watch it. And it's not like you need a special decoder ring or special lenses. It's all out there in the open. It's just that the people participating in it have become accustomed to it. So one example that I famously have given or it's now become famous is when I got to Uber, the senior team at Uber, which was not yet a functional senior team, but became a magnificently functional senior team. But when I got there, they would text one another about one another in meetings, sort of private trash talking, and everyone knew it. So if you were speaking and someone was on their phone, you would know they were probably dissing you in some way. I observed this. I didn't have to talk to anyone. I got to observe it because I would do this and I would see the looking around and then I peered over at someone's text. didn't have to talk with anyone. Well, there's that, that form of obviousness is observable in any team dynamic. So I would say, go, when we go in and look, you get to see it. Who's speaking? Who's silent? Who is aggressive? Who is passive aggressive? Where will the organization hover for time? What will it scurry away from? It's all there to be seen. We can get there with individual one-on-one -on -one questions, but it's much, much easier to just watch the team interacting. Our, our ability to adapt is our great human superpower, but it also has its downsides. And so it, it's one of the advantages of being an outsider is we get to go in and, and observe these dynamics and get there faster than if you're immersed in them and have adapted to them. But we do offer in the book on Monday, we have a set of Monday morning questions to help you do this, even in organizations where, that you've adapted to. And we're really looking at the basic categories, you know, strategy, culture, people, capabilities. Here are some questions you can ask yourself and each other that will help you get to the root cause of problems faster. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your podcast, Fixable. It's such an interesting concept where uh, people submit through Fixable at TED.com, I believe it is, their questions. Uh, and then you take 30 minutes or less to help them with the workplace issues that they've they've articulated. I'd be curious, obviously, uh, all kinds of issues have been presented since you began this earlier this year. Obviously, your book has the framework, uh, but you're taking 30 minutes, not a week in order to help them resolve these issues. What, what do you think of in terms of a framework uh, for fixing these issues as, as many as there are as, as, and as differentiated as they are? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And we do encourage your listeners to call in 1-800-FIXABLE or fixableatted.com. And we're always delighted, particularly by novel problems. The meta framework 
for the conversations and the show is really around getting people in touch with their own sense of agency around a problem. So often where callers will start is in a sense of relative powerlessness. They've tried to solve the problem and they've reached the conclusion that it's not particularly solvable or they wouldn't be calling. And so we get to meet people at that place. And again, with the luxury of being outsiders, poke at that narrative and find the oxygen that a caller couldn't find on their own and help to see ways that they actually do have power in this situation to change the outcomes. The metric we care about is often pretty energetic. You know, people are are pretty frustrated uh, at the beginning of the conversation. And by the end, they are feeling a sense of possibility and optimism. Very interesting. I wanted to also ask you if you if you don't mind, one of the ways in which the weekend can be a time for rest is we get away from those people with with whom we work and we think about other things. Uh, the two of you are partners in in so much that you do from a business perspective. You're also partners in life. And so I could see the possibility of work sort of always potentially being there with you. Uh I wonder, you know, how, how does the dynamic work in having um, sort of this immersive experience together and, and and how do you make it work? I know a lot of people would be very intimidated about uh, starting businesses and in, embarking on collaborations with spouses in the way that you have. I would say that one necessary ingredient is that we take exquisite care of one another. Hmm. So we are constantly looking for when the other needs a break more than we're looking for when we need a break. And how lovely is it to see the other needs a break and you can step in and do it for them. So there's just the very real awesome part of a partnership, which is that like this call is getting both of us, but it could have only had one of us and that would have been just fine. And probably we would have suggested it for each other. So I would say that's a key ingredient is that uh, we have someone who knows our inner workings, adores each other's strengths and understands that we need the rest part of it. And we're always looking to do that. I think the other part is that there was just a real fear of missing out. If I was working on something, I wanted Anne as a partner in doing it. And I tried very hard to lure her away from her entrepreneurial day job of which she was excellent at. But because it's not one plus one is two, you know, we add a zero, we get to at least 10. And our hope is that we get to 100 with doing it. So it's also our greatest form of leverage. And I guess the final thing is that we overlap a little, but we are really complements. So Anne likes letters. I like numbers. <laughs> and then we could go, Anne's office that you can see now is very colorful. Mine is not. Anne is an extrovert. I'm an introvert. We show the power of difference and we're super inclusive of that difference. A great overview. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, and what a beautiful way to put that. Well, this conversation could have been one of you, but I'm grateful it was both of you. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you taking a little time with me, sharing the insights from your terrific book. Congratulations again on it. And, and again, thank you for sharing your insights with this audience. It means a lot to me. Such a pleasure, Peter. We love the conversation and wish you the very best. You're hosting a really important dialogue for the world and we're delighted to be a part of it. You're kind to say that. Thank you. 